he brought himself down to this man's level, not caring how the crowd would gasp and shake their heads. He did it to heal this man. You're listening to the sermon series, Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom, preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Lord, we have now read your word and we thank you for it. Thank you for these amazing works that your son did. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would teach us as we consider all of these words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin, let's, let's take joy. The morning has already been a very joyful morning, uh, but let's take joy in knowing that we have the very words of the eternal God in our hands. Yahweh stands alone among other false gods in that he is knowable. He has revealed himself to us. And more than that, he has a deep relationship with his people. The gods of other religions are distant. They are angry. They are fallible. They are capricious. And sometimes they are virtually unknowable. But this is not our God. Our God is close to us. He is loving to his people. He is perfect. He is immutable, meaning that he is unchanging. And he is known by us. There is a confession called the Belgic Confession. It was written in French in 1561. It stands out as as one of uh, the most important confessions on doctrine that came out of the time of the Reformation. It has 37 articles in it that focus on who God is. It focuses on the sufficiency of Scripture, the deity of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, among many other topics. Article 2 is a clear statement on how we know who God is. This is what it says. We know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, his eternal power and his divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20. All these things are enough to convict men and to leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word. As much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. So this morning, let's come with eagerness to the word. And you notice in that confession, word is capitalized. So it has a double meaning, both referring to the Bible and to Jesus himself. And so what a privilege we have to have Jesus teach us the word made flesh. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. So today, friends, we are confronted with the amazing power and authority of who Jesus is. As we ended last week, we know that as Jesus finished his sermon, the crowds were astonished 
at what he said. And yet, in this section, we see that they continue to be astonished, but in a whole new way, at his dominion and authority over sickness and disease. They were astonished at his words, at the authority that was just in those words that he spoke. Now we see the authority that he has in a different way. And so my, my desire for us this morning is that we would be amazed, we would marvel, we would be astonished as well at our Lord's powerful works. So we pick up right where we left off and we see the impact of Jesus's sermon. These crowds, they, they follow him. And Jesus has compassion on them. And so he spends the rest of the day and into the next day healing people in different ways. And chapter four already told us that Jesus was healing in a variety of ways. But now, as we come to chapter eight, it's the first time that we see Jesus healing specific people and, and us uh, understanding the situation that was happening with them. And so for the next two chapters, Jesus is gonna continue to teach us. He will continue to show us who he is, sometimes through a word here or there, but for these chapters, it's mostly by what he did, his deed sermons. And we'll see that he heals people through a variety of situations, showing his power over sickness, over death, but we're also gonna see his power over creation, his power over the demonic world as well. Question that you may think of, that you may ask, why? Why does Jesus desire and heal so many? Well, he does it to give authentication, to authenticate his message of repentance and belief. He does it to fulfill prophecy. He does it to show that he is God because only God could do and perform such amazing wonders. But ultimately, these miracles point to the greatest miracle of all, not to just heal physical disease, but to heal a much more serious situation, the spiritual disease of sin and death. We also know that in his work, he's desiring to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. We know that one day, disease, pain, suffering will all be eradicated because of the work of Christ. And so this morning, we're gonna look at three situations all happening on the same day. And so three points this morning, we see that Jesus condescends to the unclean in the first four verses. We see that he commends true faith in verses five through 13, and he cleanses the root issue. He goes to the root issue in verses 14 through 17. I'd like to begin this morning uh, in this section with actually the last verse in our section. That's verse 17, because this verse gives us the reason that Jesus performs these miracles. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. We already read in our assurance of pardon, Isaiah 53, several verses there. That is where this is taken from. It's a loose translation of Isaiah 53, 4, which says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And this is really incredible because Matthew applies the fulfillment of this verse to Jesus' Jesus's physical healing ministry. 
Yet, knowing the context of Isaiah 53, we know that the whole chapter is a prophecy of his sacrificial death for sinners. Yes, he carries our physical griefs and sorrows. Yes, he carried illness and bore disease. But Matthew sends us back to Isaiah to tell us that Jesus's healing ministry points us to the ultimate healing of our sin, to be pierced for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities. And this is amazing to see, and it's important for us to understand this as we study this section, and really every time we encounter Jesus healing someone. And so how we're going to do this in these three sections, for each section I'm going to give you a, a brief summary of the paragraph, and then we'll dig in a little bit deeper and see what we can draw out of these verses. And so our first section today, we see that Jesus condescends to the unclean. Uh, verses 1 through 4 tell us that as he's coming down from the mountain, large uh, crowds are following him, and there's a leper that comes up to him, and he kneels, showing humility and reverence. He has faith in Jesus's power because he says, Lord, if you are willing, I know you can make me clean. And Mark's account of this miracle tells us that Jesus was moved with pity. He was moved with compassion. And out of that compassion, he desires to heal this man. And he is instantly healed of this leprosy. And then Jesus tells him not to go tell anyone about it, except to follow the Old Testament law in regards to skin diseases, to come to the priest and to prove that he is healed. That's a summary. But what things uh, are important for us to learn in this account? Well, the first thing that we need to take note of is the overall health or lack of health, you could say, uh, and medical knowledge in this time. Now, we probably don't really grasp the significance of Jesus's healing ministry and how impactful it was. Because we live in a time where there's a general expectation of good health. We expect that. We expect that. But it was very different. It was not so back then. There were many factors that would cause disease that we don't deal with as much today. Medical science, of course, was not as advanced. There were issues with hygiene, with water, with proper sewage, lots of different things. Many diseases that were going around were incurable, and they caused much pain and suffering. It often resulted in death. One of the most common uh, symptoms of disease mentioned in the Bible, can you, can you guess what it is? Close. Yes? Blindness. Blindness. Blindness, leprosy, uh, deaf, those who are deaf. Those are all caught. Blindness uh, and deaf folks in God's word, those are symptoms of diseases that were happening at the time. Uh, it could be a disease. It could be an injury. Uh, it could be other things. It could be an infection that was not properly taken care of, and it caused blindness. Uh, it was rampant in the day. Uh, and so another... Uh, instance that shows us a little bit into the medical knowledge of the time is in chapter 9, we'll get to it. You think of the woman who was, who was bleeding for years and years and years. It says that she went to doctor after doctor and there was no help. There was no help to be found. And yet when she touched Jesus, she was instantly healed. You can imagine the impact that Jesus 
would have had in an age where doctors were not much help at all. I guess maybe you could say that today too, depending on your view, view of doctors and the medical establishment. But uh, even, even very different back then, no help at all. And so these kinds of healings, it would seem too good to be true. Instantly healed? Are you kidding me? It's incredible. And we don't know how many people Jesus healed, but we can easily surmise that it was probably in the thousands, probably in the thousands of people. Because several times in Matthew, he, Matthew gives summary statements that saying that Jesus went through the land, just healing everyone who was brought to him. So most likely for a short period of time, disease was pretty much eradicated out of Israel. The second thing to know is the seriousness of the disease that this man had. As we look at the disease mentioned here, we told that he has leprosy. Uh, the Greek word for leprosy means scaly or rough. And many scholars think that leprosy is the same as what is called Hansen's disease today. Uh, according to the International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, uh, historians believe that leprosy originated in Egypt uh, with at least one unearthed mummy has been discovered uh, with scaly skin, symptoms of leprosy. And as we know from the whole of scripture, leprosy was very much a feared disease. It had numerous consequences. It was feared because there was no cure and it caused painful tumor swellings on the body. Uh, over time, it would even spread into the internal organs. Uh, bones would deteriorate. It left the immune system very weak. Tuberculosis was another uh, disease that would often be caused by this, other diseases as well. Uh, it was very contagious. And so God, he instituted guidelines to protect his people. And that's all outlined in Leviticus 13 and 14. Uh, to summarize these chapters, the leper had to go to the priest to be examined. And if he had skin issues popping up, he was to isolate for seven days. And if it got worse after that, he was to isolate for seven more days. And if the rash got better, then he was declared clean. If it did not and it got worse, he was declared unclean. And verse 45 and 46 of chapter 13 of Leviticus say this, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And there are many things uh, that would co could cause a person to be unclean in the Old Testament under Jewish, Jewish law. Leprosy was uh, the, the second worst. Uh, only a dead body was more serious. And according to the Talmud, the Talmud was the commentary that was written on the Jewish law. Uh, the Jews had to stay six feet away from a leper. And perhaps that's where the CDC got their own guidelines. I don't know. I don't think so, but maybe. Um, but uh, if the wind was blowing, it was extended out to 150 feet. The wind was blowing. And this was a, a cruel, it was a horrible, it was a disgusting disease. I'll, I'll spare you the more gory details, but there's accounts that you can read of descriptions that it's just nasty. 
But next we see that the leper, he stands out in his plea and we see Jesus' compassionate response. So with the leper, we, we clearly see his humility and his reverence and his faith. He knew that Jesus could heal him. And we also see Jesus, his confidence that Jesus would not turn him away. It's interesting. He probably sensed in Jesus his compassion because he should have stood six feet away and shouted at Jesus, Lord, Lord, over here, please. But he didn't do that. He went right up to Jesus and he knelt at his feet. And what was Jesus' response? Well, we see it here. What did Jesus do? Incredible. He reaches out and he touches him. Can you imagine? That was unthinkable. It was unthinkable. It was forbidden for Jews to touch a leper, even come close to a leper. And we'll see in just a moment in the next account that, that Jesus healed with just a word. And he could have done that here. He could have easily said, you know, oh yes, stay away, but you're healed. He, he could have done that. But he didn't do that, did he? No, he touched him. He deliberately chose to touch this man. What do we sing in the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery? We sing, Look to Christ who condescended. He took on flesh to ransom us. This is a real world example of how Jesus condescended. He brought himself down to this man's level, not caring how the crowd would gasp and shake their heads. He did it to heal this man. And verse three says that immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Can you imagine what that would look like if you were there? Imagine this man with scaly skin, with boils on it, maybe missing some fingers. His hair was probably white, falling out. Imagine that he is transformed before your eyes. Arms, legs, fingers, whole, skin clear and shining. His hair looking great, like Sebastian's hair this morning. Yes. Just totally transformed totally whole. It would be incredible. It would be amazing. But finally, though, we see a lack of obedience on the part of this healed leper because Jesus told him not to tell anyone, but to go and obey the Old Testament law, to show himself to the priests and go through the purification process so he could be restored. He could be officially pronounced clean and welcomed back into Jewish society. Leviticus 14 tells us that an offering of two birds was required. One bird was killed and the other bird was dipped into the blood of the bird that was killed, but then the second bird was set free. And the priest would sprinkle the leper seven times with water. And then he would take a thorough bath. He would shave his head and he still had to live outside the tent for another seven days. But then on the eighth day, he would bring offerings to the priest according to what he could afford. And he was pronounced clean and he was welcomed back into society. Now, commentators give a couple reasons why Jesus told the man not to say anything to anyone except for 
the priests. It could be so that the religious leaders who Jesus just preached to, you remember, on the Sermon on the Mount, they would be forced to officially confirm Jesus's miracles. Because if, if the man went, he didn't say anything, if he just went to the priest and he showed himself to be clean, they're going to ask, how in the world did this happen? And he would answer truthfully and he'd say, Jesus of Nazareth healed me. They did not want that to happen. They did everything they could to discredit, to deny anything that Jesus did. And so if news, if this man went around and blabbed and news got back to the religious leaders before he came to them, they can very easily say, oh yeah, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna accept that. We're not gonna accept that. That could be one reason. Another reason is most likely what John tells us in his gospel, that Jesus' time had not yet come. He mentions that several times in the gospel of John. He was not wanting to reveal himself in this way quite yet to the masses of people. He was not wanting people to grab him, to crown him king, to set him up as some political savior. It's not what he was wanting. And also, Jesus would have simply encouraged the man to obey the Old Testament law in this regard. So those, those are some reasons. But what did the man do? Well, Matthew's account doesn't tell us, but Mark and Luke do. He did not obey, at least not initially. Mark says, uh, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter, from every place. And we know that this is a common thing that happens. When somebody gets healed, as you can imagine, you put yourself in their shoes. They are so excited. They can't keep it to themselves. They got to go tell everybody. I think all of us would probably do the same. But it happened several times. Jesus says, hey, keep this quiet. But they do not. They go and tell everyone. So the result is there's some consequences from that. The towns became too crowded. It was too difficult for Jesus to be in towns. He would be mobbed. And so he went out into the country, into the desolate places. But that didn't stop people, of course. They just came and followed him wherever he went. And so in this miracle, we see Jesus' power and mercy and that he condescends to save those who are unclean. And we know from a very much a spiritual point of view that we all are unclean before God. And so we see this point to Jesus' work of cleansing our hearts to being white as snow. But next we see that Jesus commends true faith. And remember, all these miracles happen on the same day. So as Jesus was traveling back from the mountain, uh, and in the next nine verses, we see Jesus' power again over a horrible disease. But the one who is making the plea is in a totally different category than the leper. So verse 5 tells us that Jesus returned to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum in chapter 4 tells us that uh, it's where Jesus had set up shop. It's where he was living at the time. It was right there on the north shore of the Sea of Ga Galilee, uh, and several of the future disciples lived there as well. Uh, in the time of Jesus, the population was estimated to be about 1,500 people. However, this city no longer exists. Why? It could be because Jesus pronounced accursed on the city in Matthew 11. 
and we'll get to that later. But there's only ruins that remain, uh, and you can go there. You can go and see the ruins of the synagogue there. There's a, there's a picture of the ruins of the synagogue there in Capernaum. Uh, and there's also a site that has been designated as uh, Peter's house, where Jesus goes, and you can go there as well. Uh, and they've built a memorial over the excavation site, and so you can go there and look down in on what was believed to be Peter's house. But a centurion's entourage approaches Jesus and relays a message asking Jesus to come heal a servant that is suffering terribly from some disease of paralysis. Now, why do I say an entourage? Well, because Luke's account tells us that the centurion first sent elders of the Jews and then some of his own friends to ask Jesus to come. And verse 8 here tells us that the centurion felt spiritually unworthy to ask Jesus. And so that explains why he sent these Jewish elders, hoping that they would have some influence and could persuade Jesus to come. Now, what is a centurion? Well, a centurion is a Gentile, a Roman, an officer in the army. He was in charge of a hundred other soldiers, a hundred men. He was part of the force that was occupying Israel at the time. And so he would have been despised. He would have not had a good reputation among the Jews. But here we see that he has great respect and great faith in Jesus. What about his servant? Well, the parallel account in Luke tells us that this servant was highly valued. And the Greek word used here is used to describe someone young. So it was most likely a young boy or a girl servant, most likely a boy, uh, perhaps born into the centurion's household. And so he had a fondness for this servant. And verses 8 and 9 give us his humble request, and then verses 10 through 12 give us Jesus' amazement at his faith. And then plus he uses the opportunity uh, to tell those present about who will be made up uh, of God's kingdom, who will be in God's kingdom. And then the final verse shows us Jesus' power to immediately heal with a word, not even in the vicinity of the person. And so what can we learn here from these verses? Well, I'd like to point out two important aspects of this exchange. The faith of the centurion in the statement he makes to Jesus. And then secondly, Jesus points to the faith of the centurion. Uh, he uses that as an opportunity to explain who will be in the kingdom of heaven and who, who will be thrown into outer darkness. So first, the faith of the centurion. In verse 10, we see that Jesus marvels. That means that he was in great wonder, great admiration of the faith of this man. Why? Well, look at how he addresses Jesus. He calls him Lord twice in verse 6 and in verse 8. And he recognizes the authority of Jesus, even as he points to his own authority with the soldiers under him. This centurion has a little bit of authority, but he acknowledges that Jesus has a whole other level of authority that doesn't even come close to who he is. He believes that Jesus can heal without even coming into his house. And he felt he was unworthy 
for Jesus to come inside, unworthy for the Son of God to come in. He believed that Jesus could just say a word and his servant would be healed. John MacArthur points out that it was Jewish tradition not to enter the houses of Gentiles because that would result in them being uh, ceremonially unclean. And the centurion most likely knew about this and wanted to respect that tradition. And so Jesus responds that he has not known any other person in all of Israel that had such great faith. No one has showed this deep level of belief, of respect, of deference to his lordship, even compassion that he had for his lowly servant. Even just a bit later in the chapter, what does Jesus tell his disciples? He says, oh, you of little faith. He tells his disciples they have little faith. Later on in his ministry, Jesus will tell Philip, he says, Philip, I've been with you for such a long time and you still don't know me? The centurion stands out for his faith in Jesus. And the second thing to understand is that Jesus gives us a glimpse into the future, saying that the kingdom of heaven is open for Gentiles like this centurion who have faith in him. Who is in the kingdom? Well, he says, many will come, in verse 11, from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And this is incredible. This is incredible because he's saying, you know what? Those who come from the east and the west, the Gentiles, they will respond in true faith like this centurion right here. But you Jews who think you are the sons of the kingdom, who think that your lineage, lineage to the patriarchs grants you access to the kingdom, who think that your work of obeying the law will get you, into the kingdom? He says, you're going to be thrown in hell. They're scathing words, scathing words from our Lord. And it points to the hardening of the Jewish nation. It points to the grafting in of the Gentiles. And Jesus will speak on this again later as we come to some of his parables in chapter 21 and chapter 22. But this is what Paul defines further in Romans 9, verses 30 through 32. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. That's what Jesus is saying here. True righteousness comes through faith in Christ, not by pursuing the law, not by pursuing works. It's amazing words, amazing words from our Lord. After this, Jesus said to the centurion's people, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And so at that very moment, the servant was healed. And so Jesus commends this centurion's true faith and true belief with the act of healing his servant. Before we move on to our final section this morning, we've got to make a brief note here that we cannot take this situation and extrapolate 
that if we have true faith and belief, that that will always result in healing or our prayers being answered. Can't do that. Jesus, as God, and in his divine sovereignty, he chose to commend this man's faith and grant his request for healing. However, there are many instances of miracles by Jesus where there was no evidence of faith. It's not mentioned. Even in the very next miracle in this section, it was done with no commendation of faith. He performed, as we heard, mass healings of all kinds of different people with no indication or comment on the faith. You can think of the healing of the lame man at the pool in John 5, or the healings of demon-possessed people, or the miracle of the huge catch of fish in Luke 5. They're all done without a commendation for great faith. And you can also go outside the Gospels, and the perfect example for that is Paul's request to remove the thorn in his flesh. Paul had great faith, and he prayed earnestly three times. And yet the Lord chose not to heal him, but rather to say, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so God's choice to heal or to answer prayer is not dependent on the strength of our faith, but rather in his sovereign choice. Because either way, he is faithful. Either way. Here we see the centurion commended for his faith. And this can give us encouragement. It can give us encouragement that is through simple faith that we can truly know and please the Lord. What does the hymn say? Just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Well, let's move on to our final group of verses. And we see that Jesus heals the root issue. Jesus heals the root issues. So the scene shifts The scene shifts to another person in a totally different category. He healed an unclean leper. He healed the servant of a Gentile. And now he heals the relative of Peter, a woman. And so what's the summary here? Well, Jesus makes his way through Capernaum to Peter's house. And Mark's account tells us that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were with him. And they told him about Peter's mother-in-law, that she was sick. And so Jesus goes to her. He touches her hand, and the fever immediately leaves her, and she gets up and starts to make some food for them, to serve them. And the crowd had followed Jesus into the town. They're most likely gathering outside the house. And the word quickly spread. Jesus is here. Jesus is here at this house. And so in the evening, there at the house, he healed all kinds of people, the sick who were brought to him, as well as those who were oppressed by demons. It says, with just a word, he cast out those spirits. And this is just a side note. The fact that Jesus could heal with just a word, that speaks to his deity. Because God the Father spoke with a word and created the universe. God the Father spoke and people were healed with just a word. And then our passage ends where we began this morning. Jesus did all this to fulfill what was spoken of by Isaiah. So going a little bit deeper in this section, uh, remember, Jesus potentially healed thousands of people during his three-year ministry. But God chose to tell us specifically about just a handful of them. And so every one of these accounts is given to us 
for a specific purpose, for a good reason. So what can we discern from this situation? Well, the first thing that jumps out is a theme in Jesus's ministry, that he often ministered to the outcast, to those who were low in society. I've heard this account of history, this phrase said several times over the years by different people that there were some male Jews at this time who as they uh, got up and said their morning prayers, they would say morning prayers to the Lord in gratitude, but it was very, very prideful prayers. They would say, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. That would be a prayer <laughs> that they would pray. Sorry, Laura, and she smiles at that prayer, yes. Um, very, very, very horrible prayer to pray. Very, very prideful. But what do we see in this passage? In this passage, we see the Son of God ministering to all three of those that were considered untouchable. All three. And so this was done to show that financial status, ethnic heritage, physical health, gender, they were not the categories that Jesus was most concerned about. What does he say in Luke 5, verse 32? Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this is the category that Jesus was most concerned about. Sinners who must repent. And this, of course, is every person on the planet. And Jesus often ministered to the poor, to the weak, to the ostracized. Why? Well, because they tended to be a little bit more humble. They weren't prideful. They didn't have the the eyes of pride that comes with wealth, with power. Those blind eyes. No, they were more open. They showed humility. And so Jesus continues to show his compassion on those who would have a low social status by healing Peter's mother-in-law, who is confined to her bed with some sort of feverish condition. And here's another side note. Um, As you know, uh, Catholic priests, bishops, cardinals, popes, they're all forbidden to marry. Uh, Their reasons sound spiritual, wanting to be more close to Jesus and to live like he did, Uh, but they are in opposition to God's declared order. Uh, This was a rule that wasn't instituted by the Catholic Church until the year 1139. Uh, And as we've seen through the news, this kind of law has caused, been in part, caused all kinds of problems among priests in the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church looks to who as the very first pope? Peter. Looks to Peter. We see here this, that Peter was clearly married. And it's also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9 as well. Uh, and so this is what happens when you move away from God's word. You impose man-made rules that the Lord never gave to those who are called to lead his church. And so the Catholic Church should return to the example of Peter and the clear directive of God's word in this area. But as we start to close out our time this morning, I also want to point out some differences between Jesus' healing ministry uh, and false teachers who claim to heal but really put on a show for their own glory. There's a couple things that stand out. As just we look at this section here in chapter 8, the first thing we see is that these are real, visible, and painful 
diseases that Jesus heals. Lepers were social outcasts. Their disease was visible for all to, uh, to see and to smell and to hear. Lepers had a distinct smell to them and their voice was often very raspy because of the disease, took a toll on the throat and the vocal cords. It was a disgusting disease. The centurion's servant was paralyzed and suffering terribly, the text says. Peter's mother-in-law was feverish in her bed. These people, people were truly healed of horrible sicknesses, and the evidence was on display for all to see. They were verified. This is a characteristic of true miraculous healing. False teachers, however, often they target the unseen aches and pains, the back pain, the headache, one leg being shorter than the other. They target things that through emotion and psychosomatic reaction, through manipulation, can give a momentary distraction from the pain, but something that is not truly healed. And the people that come to these healing crusades that have true, visible, obvious issues in wheelchairs, all kinds of different issues, they are most likely, almost never, allowed on stage. They're not brought up close. And you can go, you can go look up, Justin Peters talks a lot about that. Um, so many instances of people who are rejected, not healed, but they have plants from the crowd and other kinds of things. And so this is first what we see. We see real, visible, painful diseases that an instant healing and it's verified. Everybody knows about it. There's no question. There's no question. Well, is he really healed? No. No, it was no. Secondly, instant, immediate, permanent healing with a word or touch. There's no gradual or partial healing with Jesus. It happened in the blink of an eye, at the snap of a finger. And he healed everyone who came to him and some who he didn't even see in person. False teachers, they put on a big show. They draw you in. They build it up to some climactic moment. They heal in stages, often citing a lack of faith. Or, well, the Holy, I don't feel the Holy Spirit's presence here yet, so we got to dance around a little bit more. And they also do not heal everyone who comes to them, but a hand-picked select few. These same characteristics often mark the healings in the Old Testament and also the healings of the apostles in the New Testament. And so we have to, whenever we hear about healings, we always have to look at Scripture because Scripture sets the standard for miraculous healings. And what is done today and claimed to be healing does not match up to the testimony of God's Word. It's often very different. It is unseen, it's temporary, it's unverified. It's done for money and fame often. It is done to manipulate. It is done not to point to Christ in the gospel. But I don't want to end there this morning. Let's end this morning focused on Christ, focused on truth, focused on the gospel. And we started with verse 17 this morning. And so that's where we end. We end with these same comforting words. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. In quoting Isaiah, Matthew is pointing us to a couple things. He's pointing us to the fact that sin is the cause of pain, suffering, and disease. It came because of the fall in Genesis. And we know that because of the work of Christ, all pain and disease will eventually be eradicated. And that will happen in glory. Because we still deal with it in this life. 
But by Jesus' healing, he shows his compassion and sympathy to our plight. He truly did bore our illness and disease. We know that before accomplishing the redemption that would lead to the restoration of all things, Jesus himself had to suffer incredible pain and suffering in his own body on the tree. And so Matthew shows us the larger truth of the work of Christ, that he came to heal us from the sickness of sin. And even as Jesus is healing in this passage, he takes time to point to the true nature of faith, to the importance of true faith. To those who trust in him, those are the ones who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so friends, what is the good news that we see in this passage? It's not the good news of physical healing. It's the good news of the gospel, of forgiveness. Did Christ die on the cross so you could be healed of your back pain? He did not. No, of course not. He died for our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so our call to the unbeliever this morning is to realize your true state. You have a sin-sick soul that needs to be healed and can only be healed by faith in the work of Christ and the cleansing of your sins. And then for us who are believers here this morning, in these people that Jesus healed, we see humility and simple faith in who Jesus was. These are the qualities that we are to be known for as God's children. We know that God does not often work through the so-called powerful people in this world. He does great things, though, through those who are humble, those who walk with him in simple faith, not drawing attention to ourselves, but by pointing others to Christ. And so my simple exhortation to you this morning is this. Put off any desire for recognition and notoriety, but live out your responsibilities quietly and faithfully as unto the Lord, and you'll be amazed at what he will do. Put off any desire. It's so, we get so caught up often in bringing attention to ourselves in different ways. But the testimony of God's word, what we see is we are to live quiet, simple lives, faithful lives, pointing to Christ along the way. And he in his great providence chooses to work through us in ways that we would never think possible. Let's let that be our focus. Amen? Well, next Sunday, we will look at some reasons on why it is difficult for some to come to Christ. And in the rest of the chapter, we'll see miraculous power over creation and with those that, who are demon-possessed. Let's pray together, and then we will sing in response to God's word. Lord, we thank you this morning for the healing that you have given us. And Lord, in this world, sometimes we get so caught up in what is right in front of us, so caught up in the physical. Lord, help us not to do that. May we be always grateful for the true healing that comes to our souls through the work of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would use us to point others to that amazing truth. Thank you for the testimony that we have in your word this morning. As you healed the leper, as you healed the centurion's servant, as you healed 
Peter's mother-in-law, all people that were of low repute, that were in different ways shunned by those who would be arrogant and prideful, those who were the ones in power in this time. Lord, in doing that, you, you show us your compassion to every single human, that you did not come to save those who think that they are righteous those that think they are powerful, those that think that they have it all, but you came to those who know that they are sinners, that know that we are nothing. We are nothing without you. Thank you for these great truths. We ask that you would help us as those at King's Cross, as this congregation, to point to you always, to live lives of humility and faith, trusting you all along the way. We thank you that on the cross, there truly was a fountain that was filled with blood that is drawn from your veins. And all of us who come to you will be cleansed of their guilty stains. Thank you for your grace to us each day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.